As Lent recedes and we approach Holy Week and Easter, the question arises, to what extent have we benefited? Have we changed or been changed by the messages we have read or heard from Scripture or in liturgy, by the graces of the sacraments, by the disciplines, or through our walking together with our Christian brothers and sisters on this Lenten journey? Maybe the best way to know is to re-examine the end to which the Lenten journey is taking us. Certainly in this case, we think of Easter morning and the resurrection. But even this great gift of God's love has a greater end. This is what we'll be discussing this morning on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and I'm joined as usual by uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Kenneth Howell. I'm in Ohio and you're in Illinois. Are you there, my friend? <laughs> Indeed, I am. It's great to be with you today. <laughs> Is it still Lent in Illinois? Uh, yeah, and, and well, it was actually still winter until quite recently. <laughs> so our Lent was uh, our Lent was uh, really cold this year. <laughs> well, <laughs> but was, uh, we're, we're on our way to Easter, so that was certainly designed by the Lord to uh, accomplish the very thing we're talking about in today's text. And that is discipline yeah. uh, and drawing us to a, a more intimate relationship with our Lord. And the audience, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Once again, uh, this is connected to the deepinscripture.com website. And uh, we're coming to you uh, by the, the generosity of the Coming Home Network International. What we'd like to do is two things today on our program. One, of course, is we're going to look at a text uh, from Scripture uh, and that text for today is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. And the, 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 the first goal of that will be, what does it mean for us? And what is the Lord trying to communicate to us, especially during this time of Lent as we approach Holy Week and Easter? What is the end of this passage? Why is it there in Scripture? What was its intent? The second thing that Ken and I want to do today is to use a method of studying Scripture. Um, we want to use this program to encourage others to open up God's Word and prayerfully discern the blessings that come to us through the Word. And admittedly, sometimes when you open the Bible and you look at a passage, the question is, how do I begin? And how do I make sure that whatever I'm gleaning from this passage is true. And uh, I, uh, not long ago, maybe in a half hour ago, I dropped an idea on, on Ken uh, on how we would approach today's program. Uh, he, I didn't shell shock him too much because he's far more a scholar than I am, and I'm just an old football player trying to keep from looking like a football. But the, the way that I wanted to approach this, <laughs> this passage is I'll use the analogy of, of how I came to discern the best use of my farm. My family and I moved to a rural property in central Ohio a number of years ago at 25 acres, and the question is, all right, what do I do with this land? What's, the, what's its end? Uh, what, what was it intended for? What does God want my family and I to use this land for? How do I discern that? And and there's two approaches, both of which are important. And the first approach is to take a big step backwards and examine the property 
from the outside in. In other words, these 25 acres, where, does, where is it located in America? And, and that that's important. What's the climate? What's the growing season? What is land in this part of the world used for? And then where is it located, second of all, in Ohio? Where's the glaciers, glaciated land? Where are the Appalachian Mountains? Where's, where's the water flowing? Again, where's the weather? What's the history behind this land and the use of this land? Then I get smaller. Okay, now I look at my neighborhood. What have the other farmers used around me? What do they do with their land? And then what's then I come in even closer to look at my 25 acres. Historically, what's that land been used for? What have the other farmers done with it? So now I'm looking at my land and the question, okay, now what do I do? Now it's the second approach, and that is to go really deep into the land as small as possible and to work from inward out. I take a handful of that soil. What is the dirt on my land? What kind of plants are growing on that land? What are the organisms in that land? What kind of critters walk across that land? And not just one soil sample, but I have to take about 10 soil samples and figure out what's this land used for? What did the farmer use it before? What are the fences like? What's the water flowing into my land? And in the end, by first looking from the outside in and then looking from the inside out, I get a better understanding of that piece of property, and then I can discern the end of that. Now, Ken, is that a model for studying Scripture? Oh, absolutely, because as you so beautifully outlined there, it's really a a method of understanding anything. Now, let me give you another analogy. For example, you you go to a place like, um, let's say, a, a culture very different than our own, let's say in Rwanda, and you go to Rwanda and you first look at it from the outside. Okay, it's in Africa. It's not the Americas. It's not Europe. It's in the Africa. And then what's the countries around it? And then you can go into a particular culture like the Hutus or the Tutsis. And you can look from there. You learn their language. You learn from, look, look at the world from the way they look at it. So, yeah, both of these are really important. And, you know, through the years of studied scripture that you've done, that I've done, it becomes very evident that you have to use both. You have to look at it both globally and, you know, so to speak, microscopically. If you take, for example, the passage which we're going to look at, if you just take the passage out of context, which sadly is often done with scriptures. I think John 3.16 is a good example of a passage that's so often taken out of the context to sometimes misapply and misuse it. The same could be true with our own passage, depending on which theology you bring with you on your back into the journey of studying a scripture. So by looking at that text from the outside in and then from the inside out, what I'd like to do is to help us examine the end of this passage and then how it fits into the context of the end of Lent. What is this thing all about? So first, Ken... Let me read the passage for our audience that we're going to look at today, and it's Hebrews 12, 14. It's a beautiful passage. I think it's a beautiful, and I'll admit, it's one of those passages I never saw. When I was a Presbyterian pastor, I don't ever remember studying this passage or taking it seriously, and I think it was because, to a certain extent, I was blinded by my theology. Here's the passage. The writer of Hebrews says, strive for peace 
with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let me read that again. I mean, Ken, isn't this a wonderful passage? Let me read it again. Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Ken, when you preached on that passage 500 times, do you, rem- do you remember that passage? And, and, <laughs> and, and, and it, isn't it a beautiful statement of our faith? Well, it, it is because it contains these two elements. Uh, really, one is the horizontal, that is our relationship with other people. And our the, the overall tone of our lives is to be to live at peace. Paul says this, I think it's in Second Timothy, he says that we should be at peace with all men. <clears throat> he says again in Galatians that we should do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So peace is what is to characterize our relationship with other people. But then he uses the vertical too, right? That is that holiness, and that's our vertical or our relationship with God. That's what we should be seeking above all. And one leads to the other. That is how we live in this world leads to how we live in the next world. It certainly reminds me of that time when our Lord was confronted by one of his many challengers who asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And our Lord gave the two commandments, the horizontal and vertical. To love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And we see that as as an addendum, if you will, maybe the ground, the foundation for this passage. But what I'd like us to do on this program, and maybe Ken will probably the first half of this program, look at it from the outside in, and then after the break, we'll we'll look at it from the inside out. Maybe that's the way we'll, we'll take the program. But let's start with the outside in. And maybe the first question I'd like to pose to you, Ken, is this idea of... When you look at a passage like this, first of all, um, do we understand inspiration to mean not in just the general sense of the Bible, or does it also include the idea that every single word in a sentence of Scripture is intended to be there and has the potential of carrying great meaning? Well, I think it's clearly the latter. Um, we, we, when you talk about inspiration, like, you know, um, Shakespeare was an inspired poet. Uh, this goes back to the ancient idea of the muses. So the muses are, you know, are inspiring the poet like Homer and, and, um, and Virgil. Um, and that's, it's not, not real clear what they meant by that. But when we talk about inspiration in a Christian and Catholic context... We mean that the Holy Spirit uh, superintended covering the waters, as it says in Genesis. So he watched over the guidance of the sacred writers so that every word that they wrote in the original autographs were exactly those words that he wanted. Now, that doesn't mean, however, that every word was intended to be literal in the same sense. There's some parts of Scripture that should be interpreted literally and some that should not. But it means that in accord with the original languages of Greek and Hebrew and to some degree Aramaic, um, the Holy Spirit guided the writers to say exactly what. So every word is inspired uh, by, by the Holy Spirit, by God. And so that's why we have to pay careful attention to 
what the words actually say, what they meant in their original context. Which seems to me is gives justification for the very approach that we're going to use in our study of Scripture today. How do you know if an individual word is to be taken literally? Well, you begin by working from the outside in first to know the context of the passage. Yeah. So, Ken, let me then, let's work from That's the way right. outside. Before we even look at this verse, before we look at this chapter, before we look at the book of Hebrews, uh, even before we look at uh, its place in Scripture, let's ask about, first of all, the place of the Bible that we're holding in our hand in the wider context of tradition. Why is that essential to understanding even the individual word in any given sentence of Scripture? Well, uh, a good way to enter into that discussion is to consider the story in John chapter 8 where the woman is caught in adultery and happened to be the gospel reading in yesterday's Mass. And there it says that Jesus bent down and wrote in the sand. Uh, Now, writing in the sand isn't a very permanent way to keep things uh, alive. (laughs) Uh, In fact, so Jesus never actually wrote anything. What did he do? Well, he spoke and he taught. And again, the something that, again, a lot of modern people don't understand is how well-trained were some of the minds of the ancients in remembering things. Because they didn't have um, you know, modern technology. They didn't even have paper very much to write on. So they, they committed things to Jesus taught his disciples. That becomes the sacred tradition. The apostles taught. They went around. And they taught other Christians of the next generations what what Christ had taught and that so and then out of that came the writings of scripture this letter letter to the Hebrews or Galatians or Romans or Corinthians those writings came after the tradition had already started so it's proper as you as you that scripture is a part of that tradition so the idea that for example you and I used to probably believe that that tradition was something added on to scripture uh, is really not accurate because scripture is really a part of that tradition. And as Paul said, but in, there's other aspects of the tradition. I was going to say, as Paul said right. in second Thessalonians two fifteen. so then brethren stand firm and hold to the traditions, which you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter. So we recognize that the sacred tradition yeah, yeah. that our Lord passed on to his apostles, to their disciples, on and on, guided by the Holy Spirit, preserved by the Holy Spirit. And the church was, as, as Pope John Paul says in the beginning of the catechism, that the church's purpose is for uh, guarding the deposit of faith. That's passed on. And so we recognize right. that the scripture, as Paul said in Second Timothy, in which all of scripture is been given to us, inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. All of that is a part of this wider tradition. So we need to interpret even one sentence within the context of that wider message we receive from our Lord. So if we have this yes, wider, gives us the context. If we have this wider context of sacred tradition, um, maybe it's good at that point to ask ourselves, can about peace and holiness, peace and holiness in the wider tradition of our faith. I mean, we're going to get into that when we get to the fine passage, but peace and holiness as an important part 
of the wider tradition of our Judeo-Christian faith. Well, I think it's rooted uh, deeply in the experience of the people of God in the Old Testament because those two things, peace and holiness, ultimately describe who God is. In other words, God is holiness. He is separate from sin. He is separate even from uh, our human limitations. And so God is, he is the very definition of holiness. Now, to be holy is to be sacred, to be, um, to be above the fray, so to speak, is to be at peace. And all of the great witnesses in the, in the sacred tradition of spiritual writing in the church make it very clear that the way to find God is through peace of heart. And so it's, not, it's good to seek peace because that's how we can ultimately end up in the, in the, uh, the presence of God. Um, but that really comes as a result of seeking holiness. That's what I think we learned from the Old Testament. I might just point our listeners to Psalm 15, where it asks the question, who may abide in your tent or your, your, your tabernacle? Who may dwell on your holy hill? It's he who walks blamelessly and does what is right, who speaks the truth from his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and who does no evil to his neighbor and takes up it does not take up a reproach against his neighbors and it says at the end of the psalm those who do these things shall never be moved so the sense of peace comes from holiness and that was already instilled in the minds and the hearts of faithful Jews in the old testament what is then look as we're moving in towards it what is the the place of hebrews in the canon um, historically, mm. why is it there? Why is it in the place it is? What what point does it have as a part of the whole canon, the context of Scripture? Well, the, one of the most interesting parts, uh, facts about Hebrews is that the author is not identified. So it doesn't look like uh, a letter on, on, on the surface, and it looks more like a sermon or a homily that was given um, maybe in uh, by, by the apostles. Now, most of the church fathers, as far as I know, uh, identify Paul as the writer. That's right. However, um, however um, I don't think the church has ever definitively said that it's necessary to believe that. Uh, and, and part of the reason is because the, the, uh, the writing itself doesn't say who wrote it. And so others have been proposed, Barnabas and, and some of the earliest other uh, writers. Um, but so we don't really know. But what we do know is this. From the letter itself, we know two things, or maybe three. One, whoever wrote this letter was clearly a Jew. He knew the Old Testament, mm -hmm. and he quotes the Old Testament from the Septuagint. He doesn't translate it from the Hebrew. He always quotes from the Septuagint. Uh, we also know that this was a, apparently a, a fairly educated man because the style of the writing is quite literary compared to some other documents in the New Testament. Um, we also know that um, it was directed to a Jewish Christian audience. 
And most likely, it was Christians who were still living in Jerusalem in the first century. Why? Because he speaks at times as if the temple is still standing. Now, we know historically that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus, who then became emperor. Um, and because of that, we, we can infer that the, the letter must have been written before that because he speaks about those who serve at the altar, meaning the Jewish priests. So here's what we have. We have uh, Jewish Christians, or you might say Jews who've, who've been Messianic Jews, and they're living in Jerusalem and they're feeling the pull back to their Judaism. So the author is writing to them and telling them of the superiority of Christ precisely because they're being tempted to, to abandon Christ and to go back to the old temple worship. So part of his argument is the superiority of Christ over the angels, the superiority of Christ over Moses, the superiority of Christ uh, over the sanctuary of heaven, over the sanctuary on earth, the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. So everything that's said in this book is absolutely consistent with things in the Old Testament and in the New, which is one of the reasons why I think the church eventually said, oh, no, this is definitely a part of the canon of Scripture. Well, and, and if if you don't mind, Ken, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for claiming that Paul was the author of this text. <laughs> um, okay, that's fine. And uh, the reason <laughs> I do that— That's probably claim as any. Well— You've got two doctors in front of your name, so I know you need to be a little guarded. But uh, I only had a reverend in front of mine years ago. And uh, and I remember when I studied Scripture in seminary, and uh, and you did too, Ken. Remember, we had those classes on form criticism and redaction criticism, grammatical hist- criticism and historical criticism. And, and what they were trying to do in, in the best sense of the word is that scholars— uh, believing scholars yet recognize that when you look at any text of Scripture, that in trying to get to the original language, sometimes you recognize that there were variants in the manuscripts. So how do we know what was in the original manuscript? And then when it comes to authors, trying to figure out, well, did Paul write Ephesians or did Paul write Second Thessalonians? And and I remember seeing a book out there. The title of the book was The Books That Paul Didn't Write. And it was a book about <laughs> Ephesians and a book about Colossians and a book about Thessalonians. And, oh, yeah. and the question yeah. is, wait a second, you know, what, who are the authors here? And often the reason, Ken, the underlying reason that they'll deny authorship to Paul or someone, you see, the, the language is different. The gram, the grammar is different. The vocabulary oh, yeah. is different. The structure is different. And the reason I've never bought that argument ever is because I've been a writer for 40 years. And I began yeah, writing when yeah. I was in college, and I was the editor of, of newsletters. And, and then I wrote in magazines, and then I wrote homilies and sermons and then papers. And then I've written a few books, and I'm still mm. doing things. And you can pick out any one of my things and wonder, you know, Marcus didn't write that. This one sounds much too intelligent. <laughs> right. It could not have been him. 
But the question is, <laughs> you know, what was I going through at the time? Uh, who was I writing to? What was the purpose I was writing right. to? That's right. And I think the purpose of Hebrews is a whole lot different than the person purpose of Galatians. And these different That's things, right. or Philippians, and this explains the vocabulary, the structure, the argument uh, that Paul would have used, who was quite an intelligent guy, that he would use to address sure different audiences. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Paul, uh, Paul uh, again, or whoever wrote it, uh, clearly was someone who... Um, poured his whole heart and soul into this writing. And if Paul, and it makes sense that it was Paul because um, he was a Jew. We know that he studied under the feet of Gamaliel, under the rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. So perhaps he knew these people personally. So in writing to them, he's absolutely persuaded that he's got to do everything within his power to bring them back to the fullness because What he's saying basically is that in Christ we have a new Moses. We have someone better than the angels. We have someone better than we have someone who is like Melchizedek, but better than Melchizedek. And we have, as he says in chapter eight, now we have such a high priest seated seated in the in the tabernacle of heaven. So by the time we come to chapter twelve, he's ready to go into his exhortations about how to live this out in the daily Christian life. One of the reasons I like to, to throw my hat in with the early fathers that always saw Paul as the author is that I think it gives us then confidence that when we read a passage like the one we're reading, it's coming from the same mind of the man that wrote Romans and First Corinthians, that wrote Philippians. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the same Holy Spirit that inspires, but we can ask ourselves when we look at the word peace or holiness, then how did Paul use those terms? We can see it in the wider context of that scripture. It looks we're going to come up on the break here in just a moment, Ken. Real, real quickly, um, you brought us to chapter 12. What is the significance, really quickly, of 12 in the context of the whole book? Well, I think if you look uh, at the very first verses, you see something there that uh, gives you an indication when he speaks about the great cloud of witnesses. In other words, here's all the grace that God is going to give, and here's what we're going to do with it. All right, Ken, I drop that on you with not enough time. We come back after the break. We'll pick up right from there the significance of chapter 12 within the whole book of Hebrews. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, These earliest writings hearken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you.
The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus as he welcomes former Protestant Paul McCusker to the show. Find out how the Holy Spirit led him home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by, with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And once again, you can find out more about our program on deepinscripture.com, all the old programs, and we'd love to have your feedback to know whether this program is an encouragement to you and if you have any suggestions. Ken, I interrupted you just before the break. We're still in the process of working from the outside into this passage. We've looked at the, the place of Scripture in the wider tradition of the church. Hebrews is a part of the canon of Scripture. We looked at, now I want to just talk a bit about chapter 12 in the context of this book which we both agree is probably more of a homily maybe even a, a homily mm -hmm. for baptism uh, as opposed to a letter mm -hmm. so where does the chapter 12 what's the point that the author wants to make in this chapter in the context of the wider book well it's um, interesting that the, the choice of words that he uses here beginning chapter 12 the first word of the chapter is Toigarun, which is a very strong conclusion. Greek had many more particles or, or concluding particles than we have in English, and they had varying levels of strength. And so when we begin chapter 12, it's almost as if he's saying, okay, here's the whole meaning of everything we've been talking about. For 11 chapters, I've been talking about the superiority of Christ. And how all the saints, especially in chapter 11, that great, you know, litany of the saints, right. so to speak, of the Old Testament saints. Um, I've been talking about that they've been looking forward to this very day in which we are living. So what's the what's the practical significance? Well, he goes on to say what it means that we should lay aside every weight, the sin that so easily besets us or, or takes us in, deceives us. And we should run the race looking to Jesus. That's the point of what he's saying. Look to Jesus, the author, the guide, the leader, and the finisher or the completer of our faith. Jesus was there at the beginning in his baptism, in our baptism, and he's also going to be the one who gives us the perseverance to complete that journey. But notice the verb he chooses. We have to run the race. We don't just walk we don't lollygag through it. We have to consciously, proactively pursue it. And that means negatively putting aside those things which hinder us, but positively looking to him. Now, if you think about it for just a moment, he transitions, particularly in verse three, 
or to a new section of the chapter where he's talking about the struggle against uh, persecution. And he wants us to see this, these problems that we're facing not as God's hate, but as God's love, as his discipline. We need to be disciplined as Christians because we're not yet perfect. We're not yet holy. We're not yet at peace. And so he lifts up Jesus and he said, he endured this kind of opposition from sinners as well. So that's all leading up to this exhortation to, you might say, gird your loins. He mentions this in verse uh, in verse 12. Lift up your dripping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight your feet for the paths. In other words, he's using language very common in the Old Testament here to say that we we need to actively pursue. And so when he uses the word in verse 14 that you mentioned, pursue peace. Don't just sort of happen into peace. Pursue it. That's where we want to. He's, he's, he's imagining here a very active Christian pursuit of holiness. I, I've always liked verse 12 and 13, especially as now I'm, I'm uh, in my twilight years. Uh, as I'm getting older, <laughs> and after I come in from doing some work on the farm and can hardly walk, and Paul says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight your paths for your feet. I mean, it almost sounds like I had just finished a glass of scotch or something, uh, so that what is lame <laughs> may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I mean, boy, does that describe how I feel after I come in from... Uh, <laughs> I remember when I had, not long ago, uh, I had one of the calves, one of our little Angus calves had fallen in the winter and got caught in the snow and was frozen to the ground way up on the edge of a hill. It was near death. When I, I, I worked my way up in the eight, eight inch snow in the wind to try and help oh, this cow, it was about 15 degrees out. He was, she was frozen to the ground, a little calf. And I had to get a big spud bar to chip it free from the ice. And I couldn't even move the cow because you know, when cows walk on mud, they leave little lakes, and then when they freeze, it's like uh, grit on a sandpaper. But, you know, we did everything we could, and we got that little calf in the barn, and when I was done, I was living out verses 12 through 13, and... <laughs> well, you were like the good shepherd going after the sheep. <laughs> well, I mean, that's our walk with Jesus Christ. If we really run the race, we're going to get spent. Yeah. And if we're not being spent, right, yeah. are we running? Are we yeah. walking? Are we dawdling? Are we lazing back? Are we couch potatoes in our faith? And as you said, the context of yeah. here, because if we jump over the passage to verse 15, the author is saying, see to it that no one fail to obtain the grace of God. This is not just for us, yeah. Ken, right? This is what we're called to do because others are supposed to be running with us. Yeah, absolutely. And and so it's it's so wonderful because he, he says there, as you said, see to it that no one is lacking in the grace of God, lest the root of bitterness, you know, come up and, and ultimately strangle our faith. If and, and so what what I think that he's he's saying is that um, the grace of God is there for us. God gives us that grace. For example, we often call Lent the sea, a season of grace. Mm -hmm. God wants to pour out the grace upon us. But then we have to respond to that grace as well. 
We have to give ourselves to it and embrace it with all that we are. All right. Let's go to the second part then. Working from the inside out, we've looked at the wider context. Now we're going to dig into the soil of this passage. Once again, the whole passage reads this. It says, Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so one way to to examine this passage from the inside out is to reduce this sentence down to its most condensed form. And then from there, work backwards and ask the question, all right, why did the author add this other word or this phrase? So Ken, let's look at the most condensed form, which and you're the Greek scholar, it seems to me that the most condensed form of this long passage is simply strive for peace and holiness. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, It's interesting that in the uh, Greek text, uh, the author puts the word peace first. And here's another way to translate that to make the emphasis clear. It is for peace that you should seek. Or it is for peace that you should orient yourself with all people and also the holiness. So he's emphasizing the peace. And why would that be? Well, because they were experiencing persecution from their fellow Jews for their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. They weren't attending, apparently, the <clears throat> services of the temple in Jerusalem anymore. So they were being perhaps criticized, perhaps ostracized. And he says that in various places, in other ways. And and what he wants them to see is that this is actually God's means for them to learn to be true children of God. Now, what should the response of a Christian under persecution be? He should He's saying you should still make peace with those who are your persecutors. I remember in the still make that. Go ahead, Ken. I remember in the late sixties, Ken. I I I can still remember back that far, but I remember the word peace was used all the time. In fact, we even had a hand signal that was Mm -hmm. uh, to convey peace to people. You know, to hold up the rabbit ears of your fingers uh, to convey Mm peace. You know, and today we watch the news. We have our Secretary of State going across the world trying to make peace with people over there. I'm not sure he's accomplishing it, but I'm not getting into politics here. But is that the kind of peace Paul is talking about here? Is that the kind of peace that in the context here we're called, we're to, as you interpreted it, peace is that to which we are to aim? Well, you, you know, when you, this letter was written in Greek and beautiful Greek and that, but still it was written to Jews. And so they would have interpreted the word peace according to their culture. And, of course, they probably knew that it was shalom. And if we look at shalom um, in the Old Testament uh, to get the meaning of it in the New, it's very clear that it's not simply peace in the sense of a, a secretary of state or a foreign minister going to try to come up with negotiation. What peace is, is a sense of well-being that pervades all of life. And so the, the peace or the shalom that is being sought here is not just um, a inner peace or a peace between people, but it's a total sense of well-being 
that everyone can participate in. So he's saying, if you if you pursue peace or good, healthy, um, righteous, or just relationships with even those who are persecuting you, that in turn will give you the inner peace that you have. Now notice, this author says that that peace should be sought with all people, not just some, with all. Okay, I and that would include those who are... Yes, go ahead. I was going to say, that's, that's kind of now, we're adding back into this little sentence, and that's good, Ken. Striving for peace and holiness, so understanding at the core, maybe three things in that. What peace is, what holiness is, and then this call to strive for it. We're to strive for peace and holiness. I mean, in, in a way, that's the calling from our Lord. That was the point of his Sermon on the Mount. That was the point of the psalm you talked about. That's the point throughout all of Paul's letters, striving for peace and holiness. When our Lord met his apostles in his resurrected body, coming through the door, what's the first thing he says? Peace. Peace. That's what he wants. Mm. And so what we see is, before we even look at the other words we're going to add into it, is talk a bit, Ken, about how this peace that he's talking about here is the mystery of the both and. It's something that we must do, but yet without God, we cannot accomplish it. It's a both and in our relationship between what we do and what God does. Well, you remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord said, blessed are the peacemakers. And when he said that, of course, he was he was trying to encourage his original hearers and us to understand the priority of living um, in harmony with others. Because no one really desires to be at odds with other people all of the time. No one can live in a state of turmoil all the time. So he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Why would they be called the children of God? Because God is the source of all peace. And the text that you alluded to or quoted there from the the Gospel of John is when Jesus says, I give you my peace, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, but so I give to you. In other words, the peace that we're seeking and that the author of Hebrews says we should seek is a peace that ultimately comes from God. And if that peace, if we become the instruments of peace within the world, then as Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, we will become the children of God because we are peacemakers. Um, So the peace is at once a gift from God, but it's also something that we have to take in as his gift and become the instruments of God in sharing that gift with others. If I might just share one little story, I think that one of the things that in my my Reformed or Presbyterian background, I, I realized was that um, I wasn't very good at being a peacemaker. <laughs> and part of the reason was, is because I wasn't at peace within myself. Part of the reason I wasn't at peace within myself was because I hadn't yet quite connected with the ultimate source of peace, who is God. So then turning that around and coming the other way, in order for us to be at peace, being a peacemaker, we first have to receive peace from God. 
within our hearts. Then we can become instruments of peace with others. And, and Ken, wouldn't you say that that's one of the primary goals of all the greatest writers, writings of the spiritual writers throughout the history of the church? If we look at uh, Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ, if we look at John of the Cross, Ascension to Mount Carmel, if we look at uh, the writings of Teresa of Avila, if we look at all the different writings of these great writers, the goal was seeking peace and holiness, seeking peace and holiness. Before I can love my neighbor, I need to be at peace and holiness with God. And even when our Lord says that we yeah. are to love our neighbor as ourself, it wasn't self-love that we're talking about here. It was about being at peace with ourself in relationship to understanding who we are as created sons and daughters in God. And then out of that, we can have peace and love with our neighbor. Well, you know, what you just said is reflected beautifully in a book that I'd like to uh, recommend to our audience. It's called Searching for and Maintaining Peace by Father Jacques Philippe. He's the founder of the community of the Lion of Judah in Rome. And um, he uh, preaches, especially in French-speaking countries, but all over the world. It's printed by Alba House. It's called Searching for and Maintaining Peace. If I might just read one uh, short thing that seems like an absolute application here of, of what the author of Hebrews is saying. Uh, Father Philippe is talking about the combat, the war that takes place in the Christian life. He says this combat is inevitable, but it is to be understood as an extremely positive reality because, as St. Catherine of Siena says, quote, without war, there is no peace. Unquote. Without combat, there is no victory. And this combat is correctly viewed the place of our purification, of our spiritual growth, where we learn to know ourselves and our weakness, and to know God is infinite mercy. This combat is the definitive place of our transfiguration and glorification. So we're involved in a, in a conflict, in a combat, but it's in the midst of that that we receive the peace mm. that comes from knowing that we are growing in holiness and that, that God has been, is the ultimate source of that peace within us so that we can be that for others. Excellent, Ken. What's the name of that book again? It's called Searching for and Maintaining Peace by Father Jacques Philippe in, in the French spelling. All right, excellent. Yeah. Well, in our time uh, we have remaining, what I'd like to do then as we go from the inside out is just look at two additions that the author of Hebrews added to this simple phrase, seek for peace and holiness. I mean, I mean, we could almost summarize all of the Christian life as our call to, in grace, strive for peace and holiness. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling is about striving for peace and holiness. Now, now the danger is that we can, in the process of striving for peace and holiness, we can become very introverted, inward-focused. Um, you know, we can follow Jesus' advice too closely and lock ourselves in our prayer closet and seek peace and holiness yeah. by ourselves. Hey, that might be a whole lot easier because I'm not causing anybody else any problems and they're not causing me any problems. Yeah. But that's not what he calls us to do. 
because the first phrase he adds is that we are to strive for peace with all men, with all men. Mm. And Ken, I particularly like to ask quickly, because we're running out of time, is the context of that in terms of ecumenism. Oh yeah, yeah. That's 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 a that's a. Our goal is not to have victory for the sake of victory. Our goal is to have victory by using the old. Look, use the old phrase. What's the best way to defeat your enemy? To make him your friend. So we invite people into the the realm of grace that is in the church, so that we become true brothers and sisters in that grace of God. Yeah, evangelization is about striving for peace with all men. Um, not just our friends, not just a select group, not uh, uh, those that are just like us, but striving for peace with all people. And the peace that we have to give, yes, indeed, is ceasing from violence, um, is providing food for the hungry. That's all what we're called to do. But the core of that is because we see in all people Jesus. Whatever you have done to the least of these, Jesus says, you have done to me. And I think, Ken, that was an angel calling you uh, (laughs) to remind you of the call. I'll have to to put him on that. I'll have to put him on delay there. Um, (laughs) Well, the question is, how can we become these peaceful people? And these people filled with peace. And I think the answer is in the second part of the verse. Mm-hmm. Pursue the holiness. It's only by holiness, which is really the holiness of God in us. It's not something we produce. It's a gift that's given. This holiness is what produces the peace. And we're reminded, I think very significantly, that without this holiness, no one will see in the Lord. In other words, that's the purification and the journey to heaven. That's why salvation is not a stamp of approval. It's a journey into holiness and ultimately to God. Ken, talk about that that next edition. I mean, that's the where we want to end on this thing is that the author did not merely say, seek for peace with all men and holiness. He added into this these unique words, Ken, that are very powerful, and we've got to hear them, that we are a seek not just holiness, whatever that is in generality, but for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I mean, hear what it's saying there. Yeah. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Well, I, I think it, it reminds us of the words of our Lord in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And in uh, another text uh, in, in uh, John chapter, First uh, John uh, chapter 3, where the author says that we, beloved, we are now the children of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that if he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, many of the medieval mystics and theologians and philosophers understood this because They understood that this seeing him as he is means that we're going to be transformed to be like him. It's not just that we observe something that's different. The process of seeing God makes us like him. 
And in, in that's what I think the author is saying here in Hebrews as well, that this holiness that we're striving for now, once we get there, once we're there with God, we will see him, we will see that holiness, and we will become that holiness. But it doesn't begin then, it begins now. Like you mentioned, beginning now. The holiness begins now. That's what we should be striving for and seeking. Remember the old saying, um, I'm not sure who originated it, but there's only one great tragedy, and that is not to be a saint. Yeah, yeah, that's a great... It doesn't matter what we lose materially or fame, there's only one great tragedy of life, and that is not to be a saint. And I, I can't remember in the writings of Luther if he ever, he, I'm sure he did, I'm sure he did, whether he addressed this passage... But the issue is, it reminds me of the struggle that Luther had that led to his Reformation. In other words, he was so concerned that his own holiness was not sufficient so that he would see God, Mm -hmm. that he ended up coming up with a whole new theology in which it isn't our holiness, it's the, the holiness that we see from Christ that covers up our sinfulness. But the point is that this, again, is that partnership that holiness is what we receive as a gift, but it involves our surrender to Christ in the obedience that the author has been talking yeah. about in the pre- preceding verses. Yeah, the more that I think about these these texts of Scripture, the more I realize that the idea, especially as it's come into American Protestantism, that salvation is this you know act of receiving Jesus and God justifies you, is really deficient. It's not so much, it's true that Christ is our only holiness, but he has something he gives to us over a period of our life as we set our sights and follow Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. Yeah, this this is not just only the holiness of Christ that covers and blinds God from seeing what we really are, but is a transforming thing, as Paul says, if we are in Christ, yeah. the old is gone, the new has come. Yeah. You know, put he says, put off this and put on this. So that's our call. And that's what Lent is about, is striving it under is. grace to be at peace and holiness with God and our neighbor. Ken, thank you again for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And all of you, thank you for joining us. Please, once again, go to deepinscripture.com and and look at the old programs, but also pass along any of your thoughts and suggestions, because I really want us to be standing side by side as we study our Lord's Word so that together we can strive for the peace and holiness, apart from which we will never see God. God bless you. See you next week.